The National Security Agency is in the middle of an historic hiring surge. It needs to hire thousands in the coming years, and now it's considering flexible workplace options that used to be unthinkable for the highly secretive agency. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. Justin, what is the latest on NSA's big hiring push? Yeah, NSA Director General Paul Nakasone says the organization is in the middle of perhaps the largest growth in the agency's history. Earlier this year, it announced it had openings for more than 3,000 new employees. And Nakasone says a, quote-unquote, future-ready workforce initiative is going to help the NSA really address these recruitment and retention issues. A lot of the things that have stymied the intelligence community in the past, complex and lengthy processes for getting hired, as well as, you know, workplace flexibilities. That's what the NSA is looking to take on. Nakasone made what could be one of his last appearances in his current role at the Center for Strategic and International Studies last week. And he says the NSA is actually considering hybrid work options as as well as some other flexibilities. How do we onboard our personal better? How do we take a look at well-being? How do we do hybrid work? This idea of perhaps some of it that that we do doesn't always have to be done at a skiff. Sure, sure. And then how do we take a look at our leadership development? Those are critical components of what the agency has to do. Or maybe how do you make your dining room table into a skiff or something like that for all these hybrid workers. But what are the basic factors driving this hiring and these flexibilities he's seeking simply that people don't want to come to places like Fort Meade anymore? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the big factors is just that a lot of the agency's workforce is is aging out. Nakasone described the hiring surge as necessary to begin replacing an aging workforce at, at the NSA. He says they're probably going to have to replace half their civilian workforce over the next five years. Uh, That's because a lot of folks that had been hired in the late 80s are now becoming retirement eligible. So they're looking at this next generation of talent. And of course, a lot of those new hires have different workplace expectations than that previous generation. Now, Nakasone says he really thinks about workforce issues really all the time in his role at the top of the NSA. You know, we are obviously thought about, I think, day in and day out as an agency that has tremendous technology, fastest computers, uh, incredible ways upon which we make code and break code. But the true secret of what we do comes back to our people. It's our talent that thinks through the most challenging issues and being able to address solutions for the future. Again, that's outgoing NSA Director Paul Nakasone. And what actually is the status of hybrid working across the intelligence community, Justin? There isn't a set policy, but officials have really been touting it. Top officials have really been touting it since the the pandemic. You know, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines has previously said that intelligence agencies have to find ways to make workplaces more flexible and appealing, whether that's through offering some telework for for certain positions some of the time or otherwise just making it a a better place to work in in general. The 2023 National Intelligence Strategy that just came out this week named recruiting, developing and retaining a a talented workforce, a top goal, of course. Uh, You know, during the pandemic, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency actually emerged as a leader in the intelligence community in terms of offering telework. Part of that is because some of the imagery that they're dealing with is increasingly unclassified, so it makes it a little bit easier when the data that you're working with is unclassified. But they're looking at it across the board at uh, in the intelligence community. You know, and that word hybrid means that some people come to work some of the time or some people are remote or whatever. It can mean whatever you want to apply to it. But let's presume then that I see employees are going to have to go to a skiff at least sometimes in their work week. 
What are the options out there for maintaining flexibility? Could I see agencies share SCIFs, for example? Yeah, that's an idea that's been floating out there for quite some time, but it's really picked up steam again after post-pandemic. Uh, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance late last year put out a, a whole paper basically advocating for agencies to fund and certify shared SCIFs to give basically the cleared workforce, more flexibility in terms of where they can work. If you work for the NSA, maybe you don't have to necessarily live next to Fort Meade if you have another SCIF with the same level of security in another part of the country. This is something that the Director of National Intel Office of the Director of National Intelligence has studied as well. Big issues include, uh, you know, funding this, these shared SCIFs, and, and actually just certifying that one agency's data can also live on the same network as another agency's data because there's so many different rules with that in the intelligence community. So it's something that's certainly being looked at, but it, no final decisions have been made at this point. I think it's a heavier lift maybe than it sounds like because the different components of the IC have not always shared much. And I'm not just talking about their data, but like a clearance for one may not be valid for another. That's been an issue, right? And also a vendor right. that is certified to do business with one IC component may not cut it at the NSA. In fact, people point to the NSA as the one that kind of holds up a lot of things. So this would be symptomatic of a larger idea of sharing and getting more streamlined. I think that's fair to say, you know, the security clearance reciprocity issue, as they call it, as you, as you referred to, has been a major sticking point for agencies for a long time. And it seems to be something that's not going to go away too too easily. And then another issue is, of course, just sharing data and trusting, you know, someone to have vast access to different troves of data as we saw with, with the Jack Teixeira case, that's something that, that might be uh, a little harder to stomach for some agencies. They might be a little bit more wary of sharing that data more widely to, and getting it in front of more eyeballs. So there's a lot of different trust and security issues that have to be worked through. I guess by keeping separate baskets, a bad apple can spoil one basket, say the Air Force, but not the entire community if they have access across something like the IC. It's that issue of compartmentalization, but then also the whole thing after 9-11 was sharing more widely, right? So it seems to be this seesaw that goes back and forth every few years. And while we have you, Nakasone also talked about how the NSA is dealing with this whole generative AI technology question. And what did he have to say? Yeah, it was interesting. He, he says, you know, the NSA has used AI and machine learning generally for many years, but these generative models and large language models that have come along, he says, provide great opportunity, not just on the signals intelligence side of things, but also on the cybersecurity side of things, how they look at different disparate data sets and being able to uh, actually automate how they, they look at them, being able to, while keeping a human in the loop, using some of these technologies to help secure networks. This is something that uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency actually just kicked off a big project on. So there's some, there's some uh, hope there that it could help the, the NSA in different ways. The NSA is developing an AI roadmap right now. Nakasone talked about how the agency is looking to actually work with some of the big AI companies. How do we engage with a series of different key private sector companies to ensure that they understand, first of all, what we need, but also the idea that they're, they're targets and ensuring that they understand that being able to protect their intellectual property is critically important in the environment that we live today. 
And that's outgoing NSA Director General Paul Nakasone. And we've been talking to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. 
Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's It's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what 
you do, even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.